Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. Today on 30 Minutes, we continue with part two of a panel from the Pima County Public Library Nuestras Raices presentation stage from the 2017 Tucson Festival of Books entitled Collective Amnesia. Local author and Tucson Weekly contributor Margaret Regan moderated this panel, which features Tim Z. Hernandez, author of All They Will Call You. Maceo Montoya is the author of You Must Fight Them and Chicano Movement for Beginners. Well, welcome to the ninth annual Tucson Festival of Books. My name is Margaret Regan. I'm a writer here in Tucson. I'll be the moderator today. We want to thank the friends of the Pima County Public Library for sponsoring this venue. To my right is uh, our guest, Maceo Montoya, born in California to a family of artists. He's a writer, a painter, and a professor. And he has a wide variety of artworks and five books to his credit. As an assistant professor in Chicana Chicano Studies at UC Davis, he teaches both literature and a mural painting workshop. And he also is active out in the community. He's a director of Taller Arte del Nuevo Amanecer, a community arts organization in Woodland, California. He has two books to share today because he's so prolific. He just has published two brand new books. Uh, one of them is a, uh, a graphic work, illustrated graphic work of nonfiction called Chicano Movement for Beginners. And the other one is a work of fiction, You Must Fight Them. It has both a novella and short stories in it. And to Maceo's right, we have Tim Z. Hernandez, the son and grandson of migrant farm workers. He was born in California, raised in the San Joaquin Valley. He too has been a painter and he is a performer. Uh, he came to writing late is what he told me. He was a late bloomer, but he quickly racked up multiple prizes for his books of poetry and fiction. And he's now up to five books also. He's an assistant professor of creative writing at the University of Texas at El Paso, which he tells me is the only MFA program in the country that's bilingual. His latest book just published by the U of A Press is all They Will Call You, a documentary novel, is how he describes it, that uncovers the names and lives of deportees lost in a 1948 plane crash, a tragedy memorialized in a famous song by Woody Guthrie. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you all. And Maceo, I think it's fascinating. You are still a painter. And by the way, I saw on your website a beautiful painting of a California field with a gorgeous sky and a farm worker at the front and an, an infinity of hay bales. Like it's the work yet to be done and the work he has done and the tedium of his work against the beauty of the landscape it's, he's in. I, I thought it was great. Oh, so thank you. tell us a little bit about that. How do you move back and forth and how do you get time to do all this? You have two jobs, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, I got my, my Master of Fine Arts in Visual Art. And um, at the time when I went to grad school, I was in, I was in New York. And uh, I was working on a series of paintings that had emerged out of this newspaper article um, that was talking about the increased militarization of the border, um, was pushing uh, immigrants to find even more dangerous ways of crossing. And so, and, and just in a paragraph, it listed the, the different deaths 
um, and um, are just experiences of these people, these migrants crossing the border. And um, I, I, was, I would take those sentences, um, which were just told very straightforward in journalistic fashion, and I wanted to bring them to life um, in a painting. And I got to one um, about a 14-year-old boy who had been found in the desert next to his dead father. And uh, again, just one sentence given to that story, and it, it grabbed me. Um, I'm very close to my father, um, and I just, I just couldn't imagine what must have been going through that boy's mind um, next to his dead father in the desert. And uh, so in line with that series, I, I made a painting um, about four by six feet, and um, uh, part of the graduate school experience is your, your peers or your professors come in each week and they give you a critique. And... Um, here I thought I had captured this, you know, for me it was a powerful story, a moving story, um, but it was met mostly, mostly with indifference. Um, and I think that, you know, being New York and the center of the art world, they, they were more interested in um, what aesthetically was this doing, was it doing, right? What was new about it? Um, what was innovative when it came to the form? Um, and uh, they felt, you know, Diego Rivera had painted poor Mexicans, you know, 70 years before. What were you doing new? And for me, I couldn't stand there next to my painting. There in the critique, I could defend it. But I knew that I couldn't stand there in front of the painting and insist that, no, this is, a, this is new. This just happened. This is a story that you need to know. Um, as, a, as, a, as a visual artist, you don't have that, um, that luxury, right, to defend your work there in the, in the gallery or, or, or wherever that work is exhibited. That work just stands on its own. And so for me, that indifference was a challenge. Um, part of it was just the frustration of that world um, where they had completely turned off to work that ha with that kind of content or that kind of message. Um, but I think it was also a challenge that, all right, if I can't grab this audience in this way, then maybe there's another way of telling this story. Um, and so I actually decided my first novel, The Scoundrel and the Optimist, was about um, telling that, that story, telling how did that father and son end up there in the desert. And what I found so interesting in writing that story is that whereas the painting is very dark and somber in that moment of death, when I started telling the story of this father and boy, um, it came out very playfully. Um, uh, these humorous scenes and exchanges. Um, and uh, I was making myself laugh as I was like writing these, these stories. <laughs> um, and I, I guess I just, I realized that I had two def two different entries into this same story and that both voices were important and that if a story isn't done, right, and I didn't feel with that painting that that story was done, that I had exhausted it, um, that I needed to try another way of, of entering into that story. Um, and so whether it was visually or through, through text, through fiction, um, or even the tone, right, a somber version of that story versus a humorous one. Um, but again, for me, the most important part as a storyteller was um, I want people to know this story story, right? I want it to be recorded. I wanted it to be preserved. However I tell it, um, you know, that's less, less consequential. We don't have too much time before sure. our Q&A if you want to begin your performance now. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to actually, what I did want to do is say that Maceo has a wonderful book called the poet, uh, Letters to the Poet from His Brother. Uh, and it is, a, it is like probably, for me anyways, the best example of a book that combines narrative, textual narrative, with, with paintings and images. And you can actually pull the images out and like frame them and hang them on your wall, which I did with all of mine because I own a copy of that book. But, you know, it's a wonderful book and I think probably the best example of all that Maceo's work encompasses, you know. Yeah. And I yeah. also, I want to say publicly thank you to Maceo. I should, he doesn't even realize this. But yeah. he actually, when I first came up with the idea, when I first had the idea to, to write All They Will Call You, what you do is you run it by a few friends to make sure they, they 
they tell you you're not crazy, you know? And so him and I, uh, he and I have been friends for quite some time. I was actually good friends with his older brother, Andres Montoya, the poet in Fresno. And so one day we were driving in his truck in, uh, in Northern California, and I tell him, he says, so what are you working on now? And I said, well, uh, I said, oh, you know what? You got to hear it. It's a story about this plane crash in 1948. And I start sharing it with him, and he says, oh, you got to read uh, Thornton Wilder's book, The Bridge at San Luis Rey. And I said, uh, I've never heard of that book, you know, what is it about? So he said, uh, I'll find you a copy. So anyways, uh, about a month later in the mail, I get this beautiful uh, hardcover, old tattered version of The Bridge of San Luis Rey that Marcel sent me and I read it and I said, this is, this is kind of what I want to do with my book, you know? And so as a nod to that book, there's a chapter in here because in Thornton Wilder, he's always he's always writing a perhaps this happens, perhaps that happens in each of his chapters. And so in one of my chapters, it says perhaps synchronicity. And that's a nod to Thornton Wilder and a nod to Maceo. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He doesn't know that. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll just share briefly, um, you know, the process of gathering these stories, uh, you find, you come across... So there was, who was it uh, last night at the author's dinner? One of the other authors put it beautifully, and he talked about how, you know, when you're going to look for stories, you actually, one of the things, one of the rules for yourself is you go there. You know, you actually physically go to the space. You don't just sit behind your cozy desk and write about it. You go to these spaces, because then you find the stories. You start to excavate the stories. And so what I started to do was... Uh, I had the good fortune of in 2015 going to Central Mexico, uh, to uh, the to Jalisco, um, and knocking on doors to of some of these families which I had information for, and I was looking for these families, but I had really no uh, no solid contact. So what happened is. I arrive in Jocotepec, Jalisco, which is near Lake Chapala, beautiful scenic place. And the only contact I had was this place at the municipio, the local government. So uh, a guy named Pedro, who worked there, and supposedly he was related to one of the families of Luis Miranda Cuevas. So um, I contact Pedro like a week before, and I say, hey, no, not a week before, like two weeks. And I say, hey, I'm going to be there in Jocotepec. He says, yes, just come to the municipio, just ask for me. I'll be there, and I'll show you where my tia lives and my family. I said, wonderful, I'll do that, man. So I get there to Jocotepec. I walk into the municipio's office, beautiful, big building. I walk into there, and I, I, I do what he says. I said, hey, is Pedro here? And they go, Pedro? And I was like, Pedro, and I tell them the last name, uh, Miranda Cuevas, and they say, oh, let's, let me check. They, they make some phone calls real quick, call to the upstairs and whatever, and he comes back and say, we just let him go a week ago. Uh. We just fired Pedro. <laughs> and I was like, damn it, Pedro. <laughs> You couldn't wait till I got here. And so, um, so I didn't know what to do. So I, I said, well, I better wander around Jalisco a little bit. Let inspiration find me kind of. And, and I wandered over to this place called the Centro Cultural de Jocotepec, the cultural center. Next door to it was the library. Librarians. Thank God, librarians. Librarians. <laughs> the cultural keepers of culture of, for communities. And I tell her the story. And she says, let me make a phone call. She calls she hangs up the phone and she says, listen, there's a, there's a school, an elementary school. You make a right, you make a left, make a right. There's a giant wall and a giant metal door. Okay, it looks like, like there's nothing there, but trust me, knock on that door. You got to knock hard. Okay, I go, I pound on the metal door and a little tiny door goes, <laughs> and eyeballs look through and they go, can I help you? And I say, yes, I'm here to speak to Principal uh, Irene uh, Miranda Cuevas, or Irene, Irene Miranda Navarro, and they say, hold on, they close it. <laughs> And like a few minutes later, I hear the door bolt. And the door goes. 
And she says, I'm Irene. And I say, Irene. And I tell her I'm the author. And I start talking to her and she says, that's my uncle. So we go in and we sit down. And by the time we're done with this conversation, she has 20 of her family members around her in this little principal's office. And they're all sharing stories about their Tio Luis Miranda Cuevas. And then, and then before, but they're all younger generation. And before we leave, she says, but you have to know none of us were alive. We're all just, these are stories we were told about him. And I said, is there anyone alive who um, would have known Luis? And then they're like, no, no. But then there's someone who whispers in the back, Casimira. Casimira? Casimira. I said, who? I said, who's Casimira? And they go, well, that was Luis's fiance before he died. She might still be alive. I said, I got to go talk to her. So they go, let's go see Casimira still alive. So we all pile into this van with blown out windows, go through the streets. We get to this house, Bugambilia's everywhere, tiny house. We knock on the door and an old Casimira comes out in a wheelchair with a beanie and a little shawl. Casimira is the coolest name if you're a writer. You want your character's name to be Casimira. (laughs) Casimira means almost sees. And the first thing, I kid you not, you can't write this, she says to me is, you need to get closer because I only have one good eye. (laughs) I'll leave you there. Thank you. That was great. When I read your book, I love that scene with Casimira. I mean, the woman is ancient, and she started crying. Obviously, married somebody else. She had grandchildren. Thinking of her young fiancé, she was only 19 or something when he died, and still weeping with the love that she had for this young man who died on the plane crash. So, You are listening to a discussion from the Pima County Public Library Nuestra Raices presentation stage, from the 2017 Tucson Festival of Books entitled Collective Amnesia with moderator Margaret Regan and authors Tim Z. Hernandez and Maceo Parker. An audience member asked, how do we acknowledge and hold accountable both current administration and past administration's immigration policies? Well, you know, I think I, I, I spoke to that briefly before where... You know, this idea that, um, like, it's all new. Whereas if you've been involved with these issues for years, um, you know, they, we, we've been very much aware, right? We, I know families in Woodland that, um, that have been torn apart by, by Obama's policies, right? Um, I also know families that, you know, benefited hugely from, from DACA, right, that became Dreamers, and, and that was such an important moment, and they were finally able to move beyond junior college and apply to a place like UC Davis, um, but, you know, I, I, I think that um, a lot of, of my colleagues at UC Davis, um, in a place like Davis, which was a college town, very much a, a bubble, um, and, you know, they didn't know anyone who had voted for Trump, right? Their, their families were, I mean, their, their circle of friends, it's just like they couldn't believe that it existed. Whereas just 15 minutes away where I live in Woodland, it made absolute sense to me. Like, I knew Trump voters. I knew that that divide existed. I knew that there was a segregated community. Um, and yet, I would so much rather live in a place like Woodland than I would in a place like Davis. Um, I want to, for there to be that difference. I want there to be um, uh, um, you know, communities struggling to figure out how to live together. Um, and so you know, the heightened rhetoric, um, the alarm, I get it and I feel it and I'm in turmoil. At the same time, I just have to remind myself that, uh, again, this struggle has been going on for, for many years. Yeah. yeah. yeah let, me, let me repeat the question. 
Why are the legislators and the leaders so threatened by the students learning Mexican-American history? So just, just the other day, I had a student approach. Um, uh, I have, it's a giant class, 250 students, and so it's going to be difficult to get to know them. And, and she came up and she said that she was in science. And um, she was you know, first generation, uh, child of Mexican immigrants. Um, and uh, she came up and she was in her senior year. And it was the very first Chicano Studies class that she had taken. And, um, she, she was like, you know, trembling and she just wanted to tell me that like, this is my first class. I never knew any of my history. I knew about Cesar Chavez. Um, but all of this was just like for the first time, um, I, I didn't know anything about. And so, so to have gone through her entire educational experience, to have gone through almost all of college and for this to be the first class where she started to learn, um, uh, about her culture or about this history that, that, that is, that is hers. That's not just hers, right? It's all of the United States. Um, but that she felt like I, I, that she could wrap her arms around um, and claim as her own. And I think that her first response was anger um, and, and disappointment and frustration and, and um, to realize that it, she, it so easily could have been lost to her for the rest of her life, right? Um, if she hadn't taken one class, right? Or if she just hadn't happened upon this, this literature. And so I think that, that the, the legislators are responding to... Um, you know, students who take this class and they become, um, they, they do become angry or they do become more militant in their activism or they do feel like there's a grave injustice have been done to, to my community and I want to speak out about it. Um, but I just, I think that that, that anger, um, whenever, whenever you feel that you are in danger of being erased, right, or that your history has been erased, why wouldn't your response be, be outrage? No, and I think that what the term Chicano, as early as I started the presentation, that, you know, it's complex, but I think that I've always seen it as being um, a description of, of the in-between, right, and how one negotiates that in-between. And so um, it's like a, it's a proactive label. It, it puts um, a description to, to how. Um, and I think that that can apply beyond the Mexican-American experience. And I have um, uh, some Punjabi, Punjabi students in my class, and they're first generation. And, and of course, there's differences when, in regards to class, but um, they relate to so much of the, of the literature. And they're like, I, I feel that this is what I'm going through. Um, and, you know, the, the term is just a term. Um, and, you know, take it or leave it. But it definitely... Um, uh, again, it puts a name to an experience, and, and if it's not called Chicano, then you know it has to be called something else. But we have to talk about it in those terms. The Hana Autumn tribal member and humanitarian Mike Wilson asked the authors about their views of an earlier generation of the Chicano movement who claimed the American Southwest as Aztlan, and where that would leave the already existing peoples of this land, such as the Tohono Autumn. Wait, so you mean? Um that if Chicanos claim the Southwest as their home, that in a way it negates those who also claim. Yeah, no, and I, I definitely, I see that. Um, and, you know, I guess I see the claim to the ancestral homeland um, and the concept of Aslan as tying into a narrative, a story. And I guess I view all histories, right, as, as a narrative, as a story. I view it through that lens. And... Um, for Chicano activists in the 60s and 70s, um, saying Aslan, that we are from here, it gave them ancestral ties. Right? For, for a community that didn't even know that it existed, they needed, it wasn't just enough to claim 
a tie to the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848. They wanted to tie back centuries, um, which, you know, there, there was very much um, that, that connection that existed. Um, but, but I agree. Um, I think that, uh, that, it's, that it's a narrative that, that is very contested. Um, but uh, I think that's why these stories need to, need to evolve. And, and the way that I see that, that Aslan now um, or that claim to a homeland um, is, is more, you know, a spiritual quest than an actual right to any sort of land. And, you know, I'll just add something to that, actually, and probably speaking from the other side of it, because like Maceo pointed out, that term, that phrase is very complex, obviously. But for myself, I, I, I refrain from referring to myself as a Chicano author uh, because I don't want to be put in those bookshelf barrios, you know, like where the Chicano author's shelves are. This is an American story, and so is my story. It's an American story as well. So I recognize that I come from that lineage, absolutely, and I pay homage by my own work. You know, but I don't feel like I need to adhere to that label. In fact, I feel like I I would rather pay more attention at, at speaking in sort of more universal terms to the to the humanity of what we're all talking about. And that's why in this book, all they will call you. I didn't pay attention or focus just on the 28 Mexicans who were unknown. I paid attention to all 32 lives and gave them all lifted all of their stories up to that place of humanity. Let's look at the pilot as a human being, as a man in love with his wife who had dreams and hopes. Let's look at that side by side with Ramon Paredes Gonzalez, who was also a man who had dreams and hopes. So for me, that's kind of where my interest is at and why I hesitate to, uh, to label myself in any, you know, by any of those labels. So that's the other side of that. You know. I think we have time for one final question. Anybody? Take it away, Maceo. <laughs> I'll, I'll read from um, the deportation of Whopper Barasa and um, Whopper's story. Uh, he... he uh, got four DUIs and then was deported to Mexico and um, uh, a place that he hadn't been since he was three years old. His parents had brought him. And uh, I actually like to read um, from this book a, a part that I had cut out um, and uh, a story that I was tied to but just didn't fit into the overall narrative. But it's actually his mother who is experiencing a lot of frustration at her son and his decisions. Raquel Barasa. When Whopper was four years old, she brought him to a Head Start program for migrant children. Occupying an old schoolhouse, it was located in the middle of a cluster of farms off Highway 113. Early in the morning, she and the other fieldworker mothers would drop their children off and then carpool together to their jobs in the tomato fields or the fruit orchards. She felt a great sense of peace, leaving her son there. He will learn how to read and count, she thought. He will learn how to speak English, she thought. He will lean, learn whatever it is he needs to learn to live in this country, she thought. And the other mothers thought more or less the same thing. They'll become little gringos before we know it, they said to one another. He attended Beamer Elementary next, and still she trusted that there he would learn whatever it was he needed to learn, which she repeated to herself like a reassuring song. But something happened. Maybe it was in his last year at Beamer, or his first year at Douglas Junior High, or maybe it was his first year in high school. She couldn't remember exactly when, but he began to change. She noticed it in his laughter most of all. He used to laugh with such abandon and joy, a high-pitched kikiki, kikiki, kikiki. But then that laughter disappeared, and a seriousness came over him, and he left to school in the mornings with no backpack, just a binder and a pencil, and his pants three sizes too big. And she told herself what she'd always told herself. He is learning whatever it is he needs to learn to succeed in this country. 
but now it didn't bring her the same peace because she no longer believed it to be true. But if it wasn't true now, she asked herself, was it ever true? Thank you. I shared a story. I think that'll yeah, suffice. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, if we have no more questions, I guess we'll just thank our speakers today for coming. And thank you. Buy some books. <laughs> thank you, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. Go buy some books. You've been listening to part two of a panel from the Pima County Public Library Nuestras Raices presentation stage from the 2017 Tucson Festival of Books entitled Collective Amnesia. Local author and Tucson Weekly contributor Margaret Regan moderated this panel, which features Tim Z. Hernandez, author of All They Will Call You. Maceo Montoya is the author of You Must Fight Them and Chicano Movement for Beginners. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. This and all recent episodes of 30 Minutes are available on the KXCI website.